Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's up, guys? Really grateful you guys are listening to the pod. I would love it if you could take just five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening to this. It really goes a long way to spread the message, which would allow me to get better guests to add more value to your life. And if you're one of the special people that have helped spread the word on this podcast, I am deeply appreciative of your support. Enjoy the episode. First time sex, they found that women orgasm like 95% of the time. But when wow. you look at almost I mean, heterosexual <laughs> sex, women orgasm like 50% of the time. So there's a huge gap there because women mm. know what women need to climax because they explore it on themselves, right? But there's this like men are not taught and that's not their fault. Like no one taught them. They're watching pornography and it's penetration and that's it. And so, you know, it's like, let's like, there's a gap in education and no one's really going to fill that gap. Yeah. So I, I've seen you blowing up on YouTube, uh, from 400,000, I think like last year or somewhere around that time. So I think like 1.4 million. Uh, and it's clear why, because you're, you're talking about one of the biggest questions that most people have, which is how they can improve their sex life. And before we get into that, I'd love to know what that transition was like for you from being a urologist to this like deciding to go into YouTube and now becoming this YouTube sensation for people. Yeah, thanks so much. So, you know, this really came from a passion for education. I've always felt that as a urologist and any surgeon, you can do the most beautiful surgery on somebody, but if you can't teach them what to expect or what complications they might have, then you're not doing a great job. And this really came to light actually when I was in training. I had a patient who had a, um, a very complex reconstruction. The surgery was beautiful, but because of that reconstruction, she now had to catheterize through her belly, through her belly to empty her bladder. And she kept getting admitted after she left the hospital over and over again. And we soon realized it was because she didn't understand that she had to actually catheterize herself. And so she just wouldn't. And that's when it really hit me, like, we need to do a better job educating. And so I got involved in social media, first on Twitter, where it was more of a professional networking sort of experience. And then from there, went on to doing things like Instagram. But I realized that on Instagram, you create a post, you put all this effort into education, but there's no real search engine type wait for people to find your content. And so then, you know, you lose all that work. And so that's when I looked at YouTube and said, you know, this is a place where I can have content that's evergreen that people can keep finding where I can answer the hard questions that people want answers to. Yeah. So just so you know, we actually had uh, Dr. Mike on the show. And I know you had a video with him as well. So you guys are familiar with each other. And yeah. I remember him telling me how hard it was to make that transition and he's obviously like a good looking guy, does well on camera and everything, but him just being able to share that information on YouTube. Uh, I wonder what, what that was for you. I know you have like a, um, uh, Indian family background. I don't know what they are th like for me, it being in that, you know, Asian background, talking about sex and all these things. It's, it, it feels kind of weird. I know my mom listens to this podcast too. So me even talking about this, I'm like a little bit nervous, but <laughs> I don't know what your uh, relationship is with your parents and how they are. Uh, but was there any like nervousness or hesitations you had or that was presented to them uh, from, from them by you? 
Yeah, of course. I mean, if it was easy, everyone would do it, right? So of course there's hesitation. Like, am I going to sound smart enough? Am I going to like be able to project a camera well? Is this worth my time? You know, in the beginning, it takes a lot of learning and time and energy. And then as far as my parents, I didn't really ask them. I just started, right? I'm a grown woman. <laughs> so I started yeah. and they were actually very supportive. Um, they were really excited that I was doing this. And in fact, I kind of joked about that they were more excited about me becoming a YouTuber than they were when I became a urologist because they could see it, right? They could see it in front of their eyes. Mm. Um, and so they were excited about that. And then when I started transitioning into more sexual health stuff, I mean, by that point they you know it kind of started really growing and so they were just proud of me for for growing and doing something innovative uh, they don't ever really talk about the fact that i'm talking about sex sometimes i'll be like look i'm i'm doing this i don't want you to watch this video it's like we're adults we can watch it <laughs> but, but overall you know um it's it's not a huge issue no but no one has said anything to my face certainly <laughs> well your videos are great so i mean i don't think Thank there's you. much to say there um and how do you balance that as you're growing, I mean, uh, I think, you know, with, with Dr. Mike, what, one thing that I really respected and, and same thing with you is that they, he continues to practice and do the things that got him there in the first place, which is meeting clients face to face, helping them being there in the front lines. And I'm wondering how you approach that now that you're becoming a much bigger um, influencer, or I don't know if you want to say that, or having a platform with new opportunities coming in all day. How do you plan to balance that with the work that you're doing that got you there? Yeah, I mean, I never plan to stop doing medicine. I mean, that's my first job. That's my priority. And I love it. Like, I love taking care of patients. YouTube just offers me a way to reach a larger audience, right? But that doesn't mean that the one-to-one -one care of patients is unnecessary. I love operating. I love taking care of patients. And so that's always going to be a part of what I do. And the primary thing that I do, YouTube is a hobby. You know, I do it on the weekends. Like, I literally do all my work on the weekends and the rest of the week is for my job. And, yeah. um, and and so it's uh, it's just a matter of like I've made you know I'm very strict about time management and um, like not negotiating but really having boundaries about what things I'm going to take on versus not take on so that I can keep both of those things because I still have a family and I have kids and all those things need my attention in fact more of my attention than anything else and so I want to make sure that I don't you know I, I keep myself going in all those areas and if I need a break well what's going to take a break is probably YouTube first and then other things so mm. oh really so you I guess yeah YouTube is still the back burner for you mm -hmm. um yeah, got mixed. And also, it seems like you're talking about different things. So on YouTube, it's more about the broad appeal around sex live, which is probably much more just broad in general that most people would be interested in. Whereas client work that you're doing face to face is probably very specific and more from a professional perspective that goes deeper into, you know, the things that, you know, a, a, an actual urologist would really talk about uh, on a more serious setting. But yeah, let's get to the big. Pretty, oh, go ahead. Sorry, it's usually very personalized, right? It's very specific to what they're going through. And, and, you know, I see a lot of different things. So what I talk about on my YouTube channel is not necessarily what I only see in my practice. I see women with, um, with pelvic floor disorders. I see men with a sexual dysfunction. I see very complex patients who've had a lot of reconstructive surgery or need reconstructive surgery. So it's different than what I do on my YouTube channel, but also very satisfying. And I teach. So I teach residents and I train them. Um, I, I work with medical students and that's extremely rewarding. Yeah. And what I like about the content you put on YouTube is, well, number one, they're, they're either from your own experience because of the professional experience that you have. But when you're talking about things that might be outside of it, it's always data driven. It's always research driven. And you're not afraid to say that this might not work for people. This might not be necessarily supported. So you, you kind of measure the quality of the research as well. Uh, and I think this is why people re respect kind of the work that you do. Um, but let's get to the big topic here, which is how to improve your sex life. This is probably why most people tuned in. And um, I'm curious, you know, from questions that you get for people, what are the things that most people are the most curious about or maybe struggling with when it comes to their sex life. 
Yeah. So I think it's, it's different for different genders and I'll just generalize as men and women, but we know that there's lots of genders. So for men, I think a lot of people are focused on the character of their erections and the, um, the ability to sustain an erection and, um, and ejaculatory issues. And for women, it's usually about arousal and if they're having pain with sex. Um, so those are the kind of most common things that we see in a clinical setting. And I think definitely on social media, I've seen that too. People are really wanting to learn, like, how can I last longer? How can I pleasure someone better? How can I, um, you know, be a better partner? Uh, all those things kind of come into play. And like from a medical standpoint, there is actually data behind a lot of these things. Yeah. And so they are very data driven, obviously. And um, I do think that's a big one. Like how particularly guys that, I mean, really it's going to be guys, right? <laughs> how guys can last longer in bed uh, what is like the average time? I don't know if you've done research on this or just based on, you know, mm -hmm. anecdotes. What is the average time that most guys last in bed, which is, I guess, what, how long usually a sex lasts for most couples or people? Yeah. So you want to take a guess? <laughs> uh, yeah, this is one of the things where like you want to guess higher, right? Just to make yourself look good. <laughs> is it three hours? Uh, I'm going to guess Damn, on the low Sean. side, three hours. Um, <laughs> no, so it's, it's like 5.7 minutes. So, and this has actually Five been studied. So they've, it's, it's silly the way they studied it, but they took, they had the female partner take a stopwatch and she would turn it on as soon as penetration began and turn it off when penetration, you know, when it was finished. And this, mm. so this doesn't include foreplay. This doesn't include other types of sex, which are, you know, oral, anal, anything else that you're doing. That's all part of sex, right? But this is talking about penetrative intercourse and it lasts about 5.7 minutes. And the, the variability is very high. Some people last less than a minute and some people last up to an hour, but the average is 5.7 minutes. And I think this That's is so, like really, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, no, I'm just saying like, I'm just imagining like, do the guys know that there's a stopwatch being played out? Like, do they know that this girl just put on a stopwatch and they're like being measured by time? Yeah, I mean, it was a research, research study. Like they, they signed yeah. up to be a part of it. So it wasn't <laughs> like a gotcha. <laughs> okay, okay. But I feel like the average is going to be lower because the guys based on their ego are going to be like, all right, I'm being measured. <laughs> this is part of like a test. And, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, that's part of it, right? Erections have a big mental component, right? And so, yeah, certainly mm. that will play a role. But, you know, I think that the key takeaway is guys like, I need to last longer. But do you? Like, do you really need to? Like, one, are you average? And two, is your partner satisfied? Like, I think a lot of the times it's like this ego, right? Like, is my partner like I need to last longer because my because I need to right that's what society tells us we need but is your partner actually like climaxing for penetrative sex are they actually enjoying it as much as they would if you stimulated their clitoris or something else right so I think like really the question is why do you want to last longer and what's mm. the you know what what is are you are you and your partner both upset about it then yeah let's talk about it but if you're not upset about it then great like enjoy sex and don't stress about this because it's not a problem there is a lot of pressure for guys to last mm -hmm. longer it's we have this like measurement it's a quantifiable thing and you know it's guys are very ego driven in general but i'd mm -hmm. i'd be curious to know for a girl what is has there been research done asking women, mm -hmm. and this is obviously for heterosexual uh, relationships, um, what their ideal, you know, sex time would be, I guess, from a penetration perspective to last? Yeah, so there has been, and it's more, and I don't, I don't know if it's specifically penetration, but just how long sex should last. And it's longer, right? It's like 15 to 20 minutes. But Ultimately, I think that the thing is even women are brainwashed, right? We think that that's mm. what we should want. But to be honest, if you look at how women derive pleasure based on anatomy, right? So the penis and the clitoris are identical uh, embryologic tissue. So they both get larger with, um, with arousal and they, you know, they swell with blood flow and they decrease when they go away and they're stimulated and, and it feels good. Like it's all the same, the clitoris and the penis. So the large majority of women over 80%, maybe even 90%, depending on what study you look at, need clitoral stimulation to climax. And that's what 
they derive pleasure from. And so does it really matter if penetration is longer or shorter because that's not necessarily stimulating the clitoris? It can because the clitoris is actually much longer than what you see. Clitoris goes deep inside and then forks kind of just like a wishbone type thing. But ultimately like there's other ways to be pleasured that doesn't require penetration. And so like I think that there's so much more to sex, but everyone's brainwashed, right? We think that mm. you have to last a really long time. You have to, you know, uh, has to take a, you know, just like you have to have a longer, girthier penis. Like those things are not necessary for pleasure. And the goal of sex is either to have kids or to have pleasure. And so mm. if you want pleasure, like that's not an be all end all. Yeah, it's almost like the measurement should and the research should take into account the foreplay because it is rare for most girls, I don't know what that percentage is, for girls to be able to climax when they're actually doing intercourse versus foreplay or clitoris stimulation. Exactly. And it seems like we're measuring a lot just based on how long a guy can last when there is not a lot of correlation to uh, maximal satisfaction for the woman when we're measuring how long. I mean, it's. It, I, I don't know. <laughs> this is just me speaking, but I've heard girls talk about this being like almost two different sensations where you're doing foreplay that is like one level of sensation, but it's kind of like apples and oranges. And they love both, obviously, but it's like a different sensation. They don't necessarily yeah. have to climax when they're doing intercourse, but they enjoy it because they also know the, the guy is getting that same satisfaction. So it's like this mutual um, you know, connection that they have around that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and it still feels good. Like there are, like I said, the clitoris is in the walls, like inside the walls of the vagina, right? It's it's right there. So they enjoy that pressure. There's also nerve endings like near the clitoris. There's there, I mean near the sorry, near the cervix. So there's there's pleasure everywhere, right? But like it doesn't that's not where climax necessarily happens. And the rate of women who climax with um penile penetrative intercourse alone is less than like 14%. Okay, so it's wow, really low. Fourteen percent. Usually, they need some either stimulation on the clitoris as well. So people do like they'll they'll stimulate the clitoris while they're penetrating, or they just need clitoral stimulation. And so, you know, I think ultimately, like, yeah, it's great. People really do enjoy it, and that's okay. But like, if talk to your partner because they may say, "Hey, I like this better," or you know, encourage them to explore their bodies and you as well. Like, figure out what they like and. And actually make that a priority rather than stressing about how long you're going to last in bed. Yeah. And it, it seems that um, I used to make a lot of mistakes with this, which is I always thought it was just like this routine. You know, when you're a teenager or when you're in your early 20s, you think that this is just like a routine. Step one, you do this. Step two. But you don't think about that for, for I mean, it seems like for, for, for girls particularly, the whole environment really is a big factor like putting in candles the smell music all of those things can actually increase the speed that someone can climax and just the whole entire pleasure are there studies around like what is an average time for a woman to to reach climax yeah it's about 12 minutes and so but the wow. thing is that's 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 longer, right? Men is about five minutes, 5.7 minutes. And so women are 12 minutes. But you mentioned a really important thing is that the setting and the environment, but not just in that moment, it's in life, right? Because I think stress is a big problem. And when you have stress, it's really hard to get aroused. It's really hard to be in the mood. And that can make it hard to want to be intimate with your partner. And also there's like two different types of desire, right? There's responsive desire where you... Sorry, there's spontaneous desire first, which is what we like grew up, you know, you see your partner, you get excited, you want to have sex with them. There's responsive desire, which when you've been with someone for a long time, you don't like see them and go like, yeah, I can't wait to jump you. Like you see them all the time. You're like, I have them all right. the time, right? So it's more like, I want to lie with you. I want to be near you. I want to feel like touch you, hold you. And then, oh yeah, I remember. I like this. Like I want to have sex, but it doesn't happen like just right away. Like I saw you and I'm ready to go. And that's normal. And so that's mm. part of it is like, a lot of people have responsive desire, especially as you age. And so setting the mood or setting the time or environment for intimacy is really valuable. Yeah, this kind of brings me to, uh, uh, I think it was called a book called Attachment. And the the um, professor, he was a researcher and professor, and he did like this wide long study around what creates 
the what 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 were the couples and what were the patterns of the things that they did that allowed them to have like a thriving sex life and and just a overall marriage and one of the things that he was surprised around is this idea of having separation so mm -hmm. that couples can miss each other so they would be going two weeks where they would spend time together and then maybe their one person would do a trip or they would have to work offsite or something like that and they would come back what are your thoughts on Couples that sleep together or that live together versus those that choose to have some of those boundaries. Uh, and this is really like my own, for my own personal advice, honestly, from my own personal perspective with my partner. Um, are there any studies or research around that that could swing one way or another in terms of sex life, marriage life, all that stuff? Yeah, so I don't know specifically about the question you're asking, but yes, we do know that like absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? But but I think the other thing is like part of that is because when you come back, you're looking forward to seeing each other. You're like you're excited about seeing each other. You've like, okay, I'm gonna see each other. We're probably gonna have sex or we're probably gonna be intimate because it's been so long. You can recreate that in your day-to-day -day life, even if you're together. You just schedule intimacy. You say, hey, we're not gonna go on a date and eat a huge meal and get bloated and then be like retired, right? We're gonna actually schedule time to be intimate. And like, like, okay, we're like this is like a date, right? But it's it's a date of intimacy. And so now you have something to look forward to. You have something where you're like, yeah, we're going to be intimate. Maybe we'll have sex. Maybe we won't. But it also takes the pressure off asking or saying no, right? So you don't have to worry about that. And and I think that can recreate the situation. You don't have to actually leave your partner. I mean, we're leaving them every day, right? We're going to work. We're coming home. We've got other things on our mind. We're thinking about those things. We're just cohabiting a lot of the times. And then, and I think it's more like, oh, you know, you asked me, I'm not really in the mood. Oh, just go away, right? But like when, you, when you've been together, when you've been away, you're like, oh, I'm so excited to see you. So you just mm. need to build that excitement again. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um. And this kind of brings me to my next question around this quality versus quantity, because as you said, like some people just are not in the mood or if you're sleeping with each other every day, is, do you, do you have any advice around whether it is really more important around having that frequency of quantity versus maybe it's less frequent, but when you do have it, it's of like premium quality where you set it up, you have candles, like it's a big event versus the frequency of just doing it as a regular habit, which is great, I'm sure, but I don't actually know what works better for like relationships and stuff like that. So there's, there's no right answer. It's a discussion between you and your partner, right? Like you got to see how often do you want to have sex? Like what makes you feel like when, like how often do you feel the desire to have sex? And you got to figure out what is going to work for both of you. And if it's not the same, then you have to be like, okay, you know, I'm going to do like self, self sex, right? Or solo sex in the meantime. And then when we're, when we're together, we're going to prioritize having sex this amount of time and making it, you know, a thing, right? This is our, this this is our time to have sex or this is our this is our moment you know and it's harder as you get older and you have kids and you have all these other responsibilities like sometimes you have to put it on the schedule or it won't happen right and right. so like we a lot of people schedule exercise right like i'm going to exercise from this time to this time no meetings nothing else i got it this is my time so prioritize your partner and make it a thing for you and i, I don't like i said i don't think there's one right amount but certainly making it something that's like prioritized in your life, whether it's a big event or it's just time that you've spent, decided to spend together, that's quality and that's what you need. Yeah. Maybe this is like my lack of experience with long-term relationships, but I always had this, um, I, I don't want to say like fantasy or like this, 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 uh, positive outlook on like spontaneous spontaneity where you don't, plan it like almost planning it seems like it's it's this like routine professional like formal event that you're you're yeah. doing whereas like from a sexual perspective i guess there's something around the magic of just feeling it or you know just kind of that teenager thing that you had when you were growing up where like you you go for that feeling that you have versus making this like a scheduled thing. But I, I guess I realize more and more now that if you are in a committed relationship and you both have things that you're doing, particularly when you have kids, 
it doesn't really get scheduled. It doesn't really happen unless you can fit it in because you're just both so busy and your mental space is somewhere else. Right. And, you know, for some people, I mean, I think you should still have spontaneous sex if that works for you guys, right? Some people still like, they're like, oh, the kids are watching a movie. Like, let's go upstairs, right? Like they, like there's, they can figure it out in a spontaneous way and it works for them and they're happy and that's great. But if you're Mm -hmm. upset that you're not having enough sex or you feel like you're not making enough time for each other, then it's important to talk about it. I think that's the biggest key is like, we don't communicate in society. We actually don't, we're never taught how to communicate about sex with our partner. Mm. And so it's just something we never bring up because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. We don't want to say, oh, I don't want you to think that I'm upset we're not having enough sex, but I want to have more. You know, it's like an awkward situation. It's it's something we've never learned how to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe pr- from generation to generation, it, it is shifting. Like there was this, there was an article on The Guardian that was talking about how people are having less sex in general. And even the ages of 18 to 29, I think it was talking about this rise of like rough sex behaviors. And some people attribute that to the accessibility of porn and the fact that a lot of these uh, millennials or Gen Z grew up with access to porn versus people that are perhaps, you know, 40 years and older, they were you know, they had access to magazines, maybe, but it wasn't the accessibility that kids have today. Uh, What are your thoughts around that? Like the the idea that people are having less sex? And what what do you think is attributed to that? Well, their first, like, large majority of people, their first understanding of what sex is, is through pornography, right? And so they're thinking that that's normal. They're thinking that what Mm. they see on pornography is normal, which is huge penises, lots of ejaculate volume and women squirting and, um, and like rough sex for a lot of a lot of pornography displays like, you know, rough sex, they don't display the foreplay and the and the like romance or the, you know, the buildup as much. And, and so they, they don't know, no one talks to them, right? Their parents aren't sitting down with them and saying, and they should, right? But I never had this conversation with my parents, like no one's sitting down and saying like, um, you know, this is not normal. This is like, a, this is a movie. This is someone created this film, right? It's, it's actually enhanced and uses, you know, tech, like all sorts of things to make it look a certain way. And it's not necessarily how real life is. And it leads to a lot of insecurities. And people see porn and they're like, oh, they penetrate the woman orgasms in a minute and it's all good. That's not real life, right? Mm. And so they're like, but why is she not liking it? Or why am I doing something wrong? You know, and then women are like, oh, I guess something's wrong with me because I'm not orgasming quickly enough. Like, this is just all these misconceptions that no one talks about. Yeah, I was just going to say for for a woman, it's also equally uh, disturbing because I don't know what percentage of women watch porn versus men. I I suspect men would be higher, but I don't know. Maybe it's equal. Maybe it's it, maybe it's more for the women. I have no idea. Do, do you have any facts on that? I think it's becoming more equal. It certainly was more male dominated, but certainly I think younger people. It's becoming more common in women. I don't know the percentages, but it is becoming more common. Yeah. And for a woman in that case, you know, we all hear, did she fake it? Why did she fake it? Do you know, how do you know she faked it? And I would imagine uh, one of the aspects for that is that they, women watch porn and they see, they see these like porn stars going crazy and dramatic in terms of how they're reacting. And it's just so incomparable to how real sex is probably is in most cases, especially with your partner. Um, but in that topic, I guess, what are some of the other reasons that you found when you're speaking with just women in general that leads to, you know, faking orgasms and, and does that happen quite often in most cases? Yeah, so I think it happens pretty often. I don't know. I don't know how frequently, but the reasons are many, right? One is like yeah. they feel like they don't want to hurt the partner's feelings, right? They want to be like, oh, I feel pleasured, or they've watched a lot of porn and they feel like that's what they're supposed to do, right? Um, and they've never orgasmed before. There's actually a rate of women who've never had an orgasm, so they don't even know if they're having an orgasm, um, mm. and so they're like, yeah, this feels good. Like, let me. This is what I'm supposed to do, right? Other people are like uh, maybe the sex isn't that good with that but specifically when you're having sex for the first time and they just want it to be over <laughs> they're just like i'm wow. okay like you know and um and so there's there's different reasons 
But ultimately, that's another thing that we've harmed society by doing, right? Because now you're faking it and your partner thinks that you are really having a great time and they're like, oh, what I'm doing is good. And But no, you never orgasm. But how is he supposed to know that, right? And so like we are contributing to this orgasm gap, as you'd call it. Women have less orgasms than men, particularly when you're in a heterosexual relationship, and especially during first time sex. And so we're contributing to that by faking it, right? And it's mm. like everybody wants the, the point of sex, as I said, is pleasure. And if you're in a relationship with someone, you want to pleasure that person, whether you're the man or the woman, or if you're in a different gender relationship or whatever, you want to pleasure your partner. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's the ultimate goal. And so if we're telling people, oh, I'm pleasured, but I'm not, then you're setting up for like, oh, well, look, now I'm never going to have a relationship where I receive pleasure because I faked it so many times. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you think a female and female partnership is more likely like have a higher chance of climaxing orgasm yeah. versus a heterosexual relationship? So if you look at first time sex, they found that women orgasm like 95% of the time. But when wow. you look at almost I mean, heterosexual <laughs> sex, women orgasm like 50% of the time. So there's a huge gap there because women mm. know what women need to climax because they explore it on themselves, right? But there's this like men are not taught and that's not their fault. Like no one taught them. They're watching pornography and it's penetration and that's it. And so, you know, it's like, let's like, there's a gap in education and no one's really going to fill that gap because we're kind of a prude society in general. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to ask you what other common mistakes that most people make when it comes to, to sex. And I, I, I guess just data shows from a, from a, uh, for, for guys particularly that it's just more foreplay because obviously for if, if girls are orgasming 95% of the time and there's less chance, probably no penetration at all, that's a pretty sure sign that it's, it's really coming down to spend way more time with foreplay versus any sort of penetration. Well, an oral sex is oral sex. It's not necessarily foreplay. It's still sex, right? And, right. and it doesn't have to be, or, I mean, there's so many tools that we can bring in the bedroom. You can use your hands, you can use toys, you can use your mouth, you can use your penis. Like there, it doesn't need to be one thing, but we're like, I, f I also find that sometimes people feel, and you know, I, I don't know about the data on this, but at least in my audience, people are like, well, am I going to be replaced by a toy? You know? And like, no, mm. no one's going to replace a human being with a toy. It's just like a more efficient way to get an orgasm. It doesn't mean that you don't have orgasms with your partner. It's just, you know, something you can do by yourself. That's a efficient and that's it yeah i was gonna ask you because uh again no names but i have i have friends that where they've gotten so used to having a vibrator this is females where they would you know play with themselves they were single for a while maybe they didn't want a partner they've got so used to it and the vibrators today are just so powerful they're so accurate in terms of how they can stimulate a, mm -hmm. a vagina and she almost got to the point where she basically said that like having sex with a guy is just not the same anymore because number one, access to the toy is so much easier. And obviously the porn kind of accelerates that and enhances that. But um, she almost has gotten like so, so numb in some sense because of the toys. What, what are your feelings around like, the rise of toys and masturbation in general and how that can affect sex life. Yeah, so this is for both genders. It can happen to women too, but men tend to be more aggressive with masturbation sometimes or they get used to whatever it is, you get used to climaxing to a certain thing, whether it's a certain mm. sensation, a certain visual. And then when you're with a partner, it's just not the same, right? And you can't get that same sensation or you can't get that same visual and it becomes difficult. So I think masturbation is good, but you need to do it to a variety of different things. You can't always watch porn. You can't always use a vibrator. You can't always use very firm grip. Like you gotta kind of try different things so you don't get used to one thing. One, it keeps it like exciting because then you can climax from different things. You're not always like, oh, I need that one thing and that one toy and that's the only way I can climax. Because sure, I mean, it's reliable, but at the end of the day, like that's not real life. So mm. um, I think that's really important. And with the rise of porn, people have become very used to watching porn to climax. And then it's just like you get in this 
I made this video about like porn addiction, which is not common, but it does affect your brain, right? You see something and your brain rewires like, like, oh, I'm getting dopamine from this thing. And then it continues to seek that thing out. But in order to get the same level of dopamine, it has to be more novel, more aggressive, more, you know, and more, maybe more vibratory. And so your brain starts building these pathways where it's seeking that out. And then just a regular person can't, with, can't like hold a candle to that. So it happens to everybody and something to yeah. just look out for. Yeah. Por porn addiction is, is, is something that I've surprised uh, and I don't really talk to girls about this, but I know a lot of guys that have issues around that and openly has have admitted it, which are they're very brave for doing so. But this idea of porn addiction, I think, can, is is seems to affect so much more than just than just your sex life because it's because of how accessible it is and the dopamine rush that you get. I think it affects even your social life and how you interact with the opposite sex or their same sex, depending on what you're into. And it's, um, yeah, it can be a very dangerous thing. And I guess masturbation is in some sense today goes hand in hand with usage of porn. So in, in, in some sense, the more you masturbate, probably the more likelihood of your, you watching porn. So it seems like it is, um, it is going hand to hand, but is there like a healthy way to masturbate in that? Yeah, sense? I mean, look, I think I think porn's not bad in and of itself. It becomes problematic, and you know, like you were saying, these people are admitting people know when they have a problem. They're like, I'd rather watch porn than be with my partner. I'd rather watch mm. porn than go hang out with my friends. I'd ra I'd rather watch porn. I'll be a little late for work, right? Like that's when it becomes a problem. And then you know, people who are masturbating all the time with porn, that's when masturbation becomes a problem because it's it's hand in hand. But the masturbation by itself is a very safe and effective way to achieve pleasure and very, you know, get all the benefits of orgasm, which are like lower heart rate, sleeping better. There's so many things that go along with like having climax, right? And so masturbation alone is not bad. And even pornography alone or with masturbation occasionally is not bad, right? If it's not affecting your life in a bad way, it's not bad. But if you're finding that like, you can only masturbate with porn or you're like using porn as a substitute for real life, then that's a problem. Right. And so mm. I don't want to like shame people. There's so much shame in society. Like, Oh, you masturbate too much or you watch too much porn. Like if you're living a normal, healthy life, you have a normal relationship, you have, um, you know, you have good, like you have good work life balance and you like, like to hang out with your friend. You like to spend time with your partner. You're still climaxing with your partner. You're still having good sex with your partner. Then it's fine. There's literally nothing wrong with it. And so I think there's a fine line and it's really important not to shame people because a lot of people saying like porn's bad, porn's bad, masturbation's bad, but like there's so many people doing it normally and healthily and like don't shame them. They're doing they're doing everything fine. Yeah, and I think this conversation itself is helping because I think people shame talking about sex in general, which is why mm -hmm. I admire your work so much and even for me it is like it is thinking about like talking about sex it it's it's not like a comfortable thing to talk about this kind of stuff yeah. openly <laughs> even though yeah. it's not about me necessarily. Um but one of the things that has come into light more with with people is this idea of like edging leading mm -hmm. to stronger orgasms in general. And this maybe goes ties back into quality uh, of the sex in general. But number one, what is edging for people that don't know about it? And what are the things that are happening in our bodies that lead to the positive effects that people are talking about? Or are there any downsides? I'm not sure, actually. Yeah. So edging is essentially the process of getting close to climax and then kind of backing off on the stimulation and then resuming sex. Right. And, um, it, it is a, it is certainly associated. We, we actually use it as a treatment sort of for premature ejaculation. So people who are ejaculating too quickly, whether it's usually less than a minute or two, but really if it's distressing to you or your partner, then, you know, that's a situation where you can use that. You can get close to climax. Your partner can then kind of squeeze the head of the penis and, and then you kind of resume again. And then when you get close again, do the same thing, do it like three times. And then the last time you ejaculate, and slowly that will help increase the duration to, to, to ejaculation. So people use it for that reason, even if they don't have premature ejaculation. And it's also been associated with more intense orgasm. So there's a lot of you know benefits to it. It can be a great way to also explore and, and, and enjoy with your partner if, as long as you're communicating the whole time. Um, it, can be, it can be a great tool. But I think the negatives really are if you're doing it like, so much that it's becoming like 
all day and you're not doing anything else, like you're literally spending all day edging and like you're focused on that, you're not doing other things. Or if you start having pain, because some people, whenever you get close to climax, your pelvic floor muscles tense up, right? And so if you're constantly tense, right, you're doing it for long periods of time, you're constantly tense in that area, your muscles can become tense. It's like lifting weights, right? If you were to constantly like lift and hold this, right, steady, then your arm would get sore, but also your shoulder would get sore, your el your, your elbow would get sore, your, even maybe your hand would get sore. And so your body can also react and you can start having pain. You can have testicular pain, scrotal pain, pain with ejaculation, pain with erections. And so then it's like, well, it's because your muscles are too tense and then you have to retrain them to relax. And so mm. um, certainly if you are having any sort of pain, I don't recommend it. Or if you're developing pain, then seeing a urologist and then you know likely seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist to help you relax those muscles is going to be very important. Yeah. So similar to like working out, I mean, there's optimal ways to build muscle without overtraining and there's a diminishing return in effect when it comes to edging. Let's just say focus on for, for men for now, what is the optimal time? Let's say you're having sex with a partner. So it's not even alone. What is like the optimal amount of edging time? I don't know how you measure. I don't know what the uh, the measurement would be there. Like the number of times you're almost come or like yeah, the yeah, amount I of time like in total. The, the, there's not a, like, there's no good data, but I would say it's usually like up to 30 minutes, right? Like you're four, including everything, including foreplay and, and all that. Like you're trying to get to 30 minutes with your partner before you climax, but that's not just like sex, right? That's not just penetrative sex. Sorry. That's right. any sort of, that's for the whole experience. Um, but again, like, I don't think there's a right or wrong as long as you're not doing it to the point where you're harming yourself. Like you're not doing it for long, long periods of time. And you're not, um, and you're not like edging over other things, right? Like, oh, let me like edge yeah, all day yeah. with my partner and not like go to work, like you know those sorts of things. Yeah, and from a purely ex like ex experience perspective, though, is there a diminishing return? Like, if you do 15 minutes of edging, after that, you're not really going to see much of a return of like we don't more know. orgasm. Yeah, okay. we don't know. That's not been studied. You know what I mean? Like okay. we don't really know. So it's it's. I think it's fine to experiment. Just don't go overboard, right? Like don't be like okay, like like all weekend we're gonna edge and like, <laughs> yeah. maybe then on this Monday is the edging I'm gonna weekend. Yeah. <laughs> like, like edge maybe, weekend maybe. <laughs> yeah, like maybe just like small experiments and and kind of figure it out. Yeah, it's worth testing out. I think most people don't think about it at all. So I think mm -hmm. I think just to try it out. Um, and is it the same for girls? Like the idea of edging, it seems more, seems more like, um, I guess just more obvious for, for a guy to not come before because most guys, they won't be able to do it multiple times with the same amount of satisfaction. Um, so for, is it, how, how would that work for girls? Is, is it similar in that? Like before they come, it would just, they would, they would stop. Yeah, you would just kind of reduce the stimulation right before climax. Women know when they're going to come, right? They're like, okay, it's coming. Like, okay, let's just take a break for a second or let's do something else. Mm. Like, you know, you can you can do that whether it's by yourself. And you can do edging by yourself, right, when you're masturbating. Um, so you can do it by yourself. You can do it with a partner. But it requires communication, right? And it requires like, like if someone's like, yo, I'm uncomfortable. And, you know, as you know, blue balls is something that people talk about. Women also can get uncomfortable in the mm. vulva area. And so if you either way for both partners, it can become uncomfortable, right? And you're like, no, I cannot do anymore. I need to release. Like it's uncomfortable for me. And so that's because there's a ton of blood flow going to that area that's not relieving, right? So it's not going out. And the only way to relieve it is to actually climax. Um, it will go away with time, but ultimately like it can be uncomfortable. So you have to communicate when you're doing it with someone else because you don't want to like keep pushing them when they're like, I'm really uncomfortable. I need to like, you mm. need to not stop. You need to like finish. This is kind of moving on to relation to testosterone and um, just overall sex drive from a libido perspective. What are um, what are some ways for maybe guys that have lower testosterone or for women that are just not? I don't know what what the chemical per, uh, way to describe for for women. Like for men, it's low testosterone. Chances are you're going to have low sex drive, lower sex drive. For women, I don't know, is it lower estrogen that, that will lead to that? So it, there is some testosterone lowering as well um, for, for women, but there are actually, so for men, we know that testosterone is very closely correlated with libido, but for women, there's actually medications for low libido. There's 
Addy, which is a um, was Philanserin, which is the uh, the name, which is the pill you take every day. And there's bremelanotide, which is an injection you give yourself an hour before you want to have sex in premenopausal women. In postmenopausal women, you can actually use like a tenth of a dose of testosterone for that you give for men, because it is you know partially related to testosterone. And so that's off label. It's not currently like something you can, it's, it's an off label management of, of low libido. And then for men, yeah, we know that low libido is associated with low testosterone, but I think, you know, it's also important to realize that libido is not just one thing, right? Like it's like mm. a whole host of your life and everything else that's going on in your life. So if you're stressed, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you've got, um, if you, you know, you've got work things, family things, whatever, all those things affect your libido, right? Or if you're overweight or if you've got other health conditions, I mean, it's not just like testosterone is not a magical pill. Like you, it's not a magical, you know, not pill, whatever. It's not a magical hormone. It's not just going to like you take it and everything's going to be perfect. All those things have to be fixed too. And, um, and so testosterone is, is very important and there's things you can do to help boost your testosterone, whether it's naturally or using supplementation, but naturally the things that you can do are you know, and there's no shortcuts. I, I love to tell people like, there's no, like, I'm not going to just take testosterone and everything's going to be great. Like you can eat healthy. And the most data we have is on the Mediterranean diet. So that's like whole foods, vegetables, a little bit of fish, a little bit of meat, healthy oils, that sort of stuff is really good. Nothing processed, no, low, low sugar, low white flours. Like you want to really keep complex grains. Um, you want to uh, limit excessive alcohol, excessive marijuana, excessive drugs, because that's going to affect your libido as well. You want to, um, you want to work on sleep. Like we as a society, we like pride ourselves on not sleeping enough, but testosterone is a circadian rhythm. So it, it, I mean, testosterone is released within a circadian rhythm, which means that when it's light outside, your testosterone is high. So when we test testosterone in the office, we say, check it before 10 a.m. because that's your highest level of testosterone. And we that's where we've made the benchmarks, right? That's where we know where people should be based on that level in the morning. And so as you go later in the day, your testosterone declines, which is why many men wake up with a morning erection because their testosterone mm. is really high. And so your testosterone um, is associated with that. But if you're not getting enough sleep, your your body's not going to have enough time to like rebuild that testosterone up for the for the morning, the circadian rhythm. So it's really important to get good quality sleep. And today with devices and computers and and all these these lights, blue lights in the evening, like people are not getting good rest. And it's it's really crucial. And then um, the other thing, there's two other things. One is doing kind of strength resistance training. And this, you know, really helps boost testosterone in a short term period of time. It's not like long term, but if you are a consistent exerciser, right? If you are exercising regularly, you will be constantly boosting your testosterone, right? So using kind of heavy muscle groups, big muscle groups and doing like weightlifting, like, uh, you know, heavy weights is actually been shown to be beneficial. And then avoiding BPAs, which are like endocrine disrupting chemicals in society. So whether it's plastic water bottles or um, things that have BPA in them, you want to avoid them because they can affect the way our body produces hormones. Huh. I didn't know about the BPA part. Like what, what are some of the common things that people would normally consume that maybe, maybe they don't know about that has BPA? Plastics, right? Plastics are like our food is in plastic, right? You get takeout, it's in plastic. It's in, your water bottles are in plastic. And while they say they're BPA free, a lot of them, you still like, it's still plastic. Like I don't, I don't necessarily think it's really that safe. So if you can switch your food to a, a glass plate or what a ceramic or whatever you're using corningware, and if you can, you know, pour your water into a regular water bottle, like, you know, something like this, rather mm. than a plastic bottle, then, then that's going to be better. Yeah. I've stopped trusting labels. A long time ago. I mean, just yeah. so many, yeah, so many um, differences out there. Um, a few last questions around around testosterone. So, supplements. Are there recommended supplements that you recommend people take for, well, not just overall health, but also focusing on testosterone? Let's say. So there's no recommended supplements because supplements are not regulated. And so in, in the medical society, it's like we can't guarantee that's what's on the bottle is actually in the pill, right? And the studies for supplements are really poor, right? They're like, they're done in small groups because there's just not a lot of funding for these sorts of things, right? They're not like, 
there's not a lot of funding for research and there's never going to be great research on a supplement, right? Because the pharmaceutical companies, they're going to put a ton of money into their research, right? right? And so, um, so there's not good data. And so what I try to do on my channel is I try to like do the research that we have and present that because, you know, that's all we have, but you guys should know what that is. And so I've looked at a few supplements. I think, you know, Tonkat Ali is one that, that is used sometimes to boost testosterone. There's also certain like micronutrients that can help um, like, you know, uh, vitamin D and zinc and those things can overall help, but there's no like, this is, this is what you have to take, right? And you have to be mm. careful. A lot of these supplements have like pig testosterone in them. And so if you take that and say you want to have kids, it, taking testosterone can actually shut down your body's production of testosterone. And so then you might actually not be able to have kids because you've taken some, wow. you don't even know, but it has like pig testosterone in it and like, or horse or something else, you know? And, um, and so that's why it's really kind of dangerous. And I don't like to recommend supplements, but I do realize people are going to take them. And so at least they should know what the data is. Yeah. I've had this like love hate relationship with, with supplements. I've had Sometimes when I have like 10 different bottles and I would take them individually and, and, um, now I'm trying to lean more towards food. And I guess, uh, I guess some people might think that they could eat like crap, but they can supplement all the things that they have, but there's so many downsides, it seems. Um, so I guess it, at the end of the day, it, it really comes down to eating the right foods, not necessarily relying on supplements, right? It's a supplement. It's called a supplement for a reason, I guess, right? Exactly. I mean, you have to optimize your nutrition and your diet exercise first, right? Like, mm. and then if you're like, okay, what else can I do? Then you can dig deeper into the research. But I see so many people being like, I bought this gas station pill or I bought this. And I'm like, well, your diabetes is out of control. Your blood pressure is really high. Like none of this is going to matter until you fix those things. And so I think that's the key to takeaway is like, obviously your audience is really into improving themselves, but like, it's hard. It's hard to improve your diet and it's hard to fix your health problems, but those have to be a priority. And and then you can think about other things. But like if you live a healthy lifestyle, the large majority of people are going to have normal testosterone and they're going to feel good. Hmm. Um, final topic around sleep. Um, this kind of brings back what we talked about, which uh, is, I think I saw this interview with Matthew Walker who wrote Why We Sleep. And he mm -hmm. talks about like the percentage of people that can perform at the same level that they normally could with less than six hours of sleep rounded to a whole number around the world is zero. Yeah. It's Which, really low. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's a whole and number. You, yeah. <laughs> and you know, it, it's because you can see there's, I read the book too. There's, um, you can see that there is a decline in performance after even one night of missing sleep. So like they've studied this. And, and so there's really like people pride, as I mentioned earlier, people pride themselves. I slept six hours. I only need four hours of sleep. I'm good, but it's going to catch up to you and it's going to affect you in different ways. And, um, I really like, I'm a surgeon, I'm a urologist. I've lost many hours of sleep in my lifetime. I'm not saying that it's never going to happen. It happens all the time, but I prioritize it. Like I recently bought an alarm clock and moved my phone away from my bed because I was finding myself scrolling at night. And I kept being like, oh, I don't want to buy an alarm clock because I need my phone near me for call when I'm on call, but I can still hear it. If it's a couple steps yeah. away from me, like I can still get up to pick it up when I'm on call. So I was like, why am I not? you know, I did, I was doing it. I was giving myself a reason not to do something that was going to help me. So it can be as simple as buying $5 alarm clock and putting it at your bedside. And that might change your life, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done all, as much as I could to optimize sleep. One of the things that I think would be a great question for yourself is I find myself peeing a lot in the middle of the night, even though I try not to drink water like two or three hours before, before sleeping. Mm -hmm. And like some doctors even now talk about this eight hour, eight, eight glasses of water is this whole like uh, myth that the water companies put out there as a marketing oh message. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> like I, I drink water. I drink a water a lot. And um, who knows what's true these days, but how can people get better quality of sleep? Because I know I'm not getting the best quality of sleep yeah. when I wake up so two or three times a day hydration is an important point because I see a lot of people come in and they're like, I'm peeing all day. I'm peeing all night. And they're walking with like, I drink 
four of these. This is not a small bottle. Okay. That's they come in yeah. and they're like, I drink four of these a day. <laughs> and, um, and, and I'm like, well, of course you're going to pee a lot, right? Like your body's not going to, your average bladder holds about 16 to 20 ounces, right? That's, that's like, and that's the average bladder. Some people's are smaller, especially if you're a smaller person. If you're a bigger person, maybe you'll hold a little more, but you know, you're going to have to pee. The normal amount is, four to six times a day or less than eight times a day, but probably most people go four to six times a day. And then at nighttime, if you're younger than 65 or 55 once, after about a certain age, your body starts producing more urine at night. So you should only wake up once. So if you're waking up more than that, it's either because you have a, like you have a problem with your bladder, like overactive bladder or something else, or you are drinking too much. And so there's certain things that can irritate your bladder and also drinking a lot. Even if you stop a couple hours before, ideally that should help, right? But if you're drinking a lot during the day, it's still going to filter through. If you have swelling of your legs at night and you put your legs up, that fluid then starts going through your body. So lifting your legs a little earlier can help. And then watching things like bladder irritants at night. So bladder irritants can basically cause your bladder to feel like the sensation of urge, like they actually make it more sensitive. And so if that's what's waking you up, like the urge to pee, then you got to kind of take an inventory. What am I having at night? Am I having a glass of wine every night? Am I having an espresso after dinner every night? Am I? Um, and then for some people, it can be simply like citrus fruits can be very irritating. And for some people, artificial sweeteners can be very irritating. And even just carbonated beverages for some people can be irritating. So I'm not saying you should get rid of all of those things. I'm saying you should pay attention and maybe get rid of one thing at a time and see if it makes a difference. And as far as hydration, how much you should drink, our bodies are pretty amazing, right? Like when you don't drink enough, you might notice your urine's a little bit darker. And when you do drink a lot, you might notice your urine's like very close to light yellow. And so the goal is to be like a lemonade yellow. That's kind of the color that we know you're hydrating well. But if you say you skipped a couple glasses of water, like your body keeps more urine in, that's or keeps more fluid in, that's why your urine gets darker, right? It's just got more, um, more of the products that make it yellow, urobilin, because it's just not as much water going through. So, you know, ultimately, like you should drink when you're thirsty. So what I tell people is drink, you know, drink whatever you want, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then in between sip on, you know, water, but like drink to thirst, or maybe a little bit more if you're about to perform, there is some data saying that like, if you're about to perform, you want to be a little bit over hydrated or a little bit, you know, we want to be well hydrated before you're going to do some sort of major performance. So if you're going to like go take a test or run a marathon or whatever, um, you know, probably good idea to drink a little extra that day. But ultimately, like your body does a great job regulating it. And eight glasses includes the food that you're eating that has water in it, the fruits, the food, the smoothies, the soups. So it doesn't need mm. to be eight glasses on top of everything else. Yeah. So that thing that just really struck a chord with me because you're saying lemonade water. <laughs> talking about yours this is a little weird. Lemonade <laughs> this is like water. like my job. I'll... I do this all day. <laughs> I know. Does for it you, look it's like totally lemonade? Normal. Does it look like ketchup? Does it look like cola? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like... <laughs> what's, the, what's, the, what's the hex file of that color? <laughs> You're like so accurate with it. <laughs> That's like a really well, nerdy joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I do design as well. Anyways, no, no one is going to laugh at that. But um, lemonade water, that. I didn't realize that is like the optimal color because mine, you can't even see through it. Mine, like when I pee, it just looks like it was fresh water. Like it just <laughs> That's totally too much. That's transparent. Too much <laughs> so like, yeah. I didn't even realize that maybe I am drinking too much water. What What are the downsides? I've heard I could can deplete minerals and stuff like that. If you mm -hmm. do, you, so it's usually healthy people are not going to have problems, but you can actually lower the sodium in your body, and and if that that happens, then you'll start having like you'll actually have symptoms of like maybe being a little cognitively confused, some nausea, some vomiting, and where we've seen it happen is in marathon runners actually. So there was actually a few marathons where people started getting really sick, and we. We thought they were dehydrated, but when they checked their blood levels, they were actually overhydrated. So they drank so much that their sodium levels were dropping and that's why they were getting sick. So it's, it's, you don't need to be clear once in a while. Sure. You drink a lot, you work out a lot. It's clear. It's okay. But every day it shouldn't be clear. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. That's probably the big thing that I learned today. We talked a lot <laughs> about sex, <laughs> but this is probably the big one. Yeah, <laughs> Lemonade good, right? water. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, this has been so fascinating. Uh, I really learned a lot and hopefully the audience did as well. We normally have authors on, so they, we usually like promote a book or something like that, but what, what would you like 
people to know about you? Where can we direct people to, to learn more about yourself? Yeah. So I'd love it if you guys would join and find me on YouTube, Rena Malik MD. Um, that's where I create new content every week, two videos a week on topics, just like we discussed here. So join me there. You'll learn a ton. I also post like short videos on Instagram and on TikTok. If that's where you live, you can certainly go there and find me. Uh, but the most bang for your buck will be on YouTube. And someday I will have a book and maybe I'll hit you up and, you know, we can come back. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Podcasts are one of the best ways I found. And just from friends of mine that have been authors, this is one of the best ways it seems yeah. to uh, to get a book out. So yeah, hopefully that, that would be that would be awesome to uh, to have you write a book and share more of your knowledge to a different medium. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, really excited for that, Dr. Rana Malik. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you guys for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week.